Welcome back for part two of our two-part series from back in June. Uh, the second piece, uh, a lot of you are probably hearing it for the first time because it was hidden away deep in the Freak archives and has now been liberated by Colin and myself while Greg and Munya are away enjoying breakfast sandwiches, none the wiser. This part two of our series where we're talking about the Federal Reserve and monetary policy and what inflation is and why they think that you have to cause a recession to end it. In part one, uh, we hinted at the fact that inflation is a political choice, as is uh, the decision of how who's going to pay for it, right? Whether they'll be capital or labor, these are choices that are being made. And before we go any further or jump into the episode, I just wanted to read this article from the New York Times in 1976. Uh, Congress had, in the year prior, uh, commissioned a study of what the health impacts were of unemployment on the working class. All right, and I just want to read a couple of paragraphs right here at the top of the article. Quote, a new congressional study released today suggests that a substantial number of the deaths, suicides, and murders from 1970 to 1975 were traceable to an increase of 1.4 percentage points in unemployment in 1970. The Joint Economic Committee released the study, which says that at least 26,000 deaths from the stress-related diseases of stroke, kidney, and heart ailments at least 1,500 of the suicides and 1,700 of the homicides during that five-year period were related to unemployment. Now, they go on to describe that essentially a rise of 1.4% in the unemployment rate led to an increase of 6% of the number of suicides or in the suicide rate, an increase of 6% in the amount of people put in state prisons, uh, it also led to an increase in, of 8% in the number of homicides over that time period. Hmm, something to think about as the Fed chair tells you that he needs to force unemployment up, all right? Uh, once again, uh, these people know what they're doing, all right? This is not being done blindly. Congress commissioned a study to look at the effects of unemployment and so every time they push to increase unemployment, know that they know. All right. That being said, and us on the proper cheery foot to begin this episode, uh, let's get on into it. Part two of uh, the what do we call this? What's this uh, two parter called? Uh, History's greatest monster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the name of this part. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes, to review, everybody, we left you uh, previously on Mechanical Freak, the Fed chair announcing that wages must come down for reasons. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> mysteriously blaming inflation, which we have shown is not actually correlated. This sounds very scary and very shocking and weird, but as we have laid out in a very lengthy uh, histor historical discussion, 
everything has happened before and everything will happen again. <laughs> uh, uh, guys, have you ever considered that time is a flat circle? Ooh, interesting. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you didn't tune into that, it's the last episode. Um, where we left off, you know, we'd passed through uh, Nixon telling Capitol to fuck off when it came and said, we must destroy the American working class. And he said, I'm the president. Fuck you. What? Yeah. yeah. I'd also and, like to be reelected to show yeah. that fucking Kennedy. <laughs> and, and, you know, suggested that maybe he had a vision of any kind of vision of uh, like how he would prefer America to work and maybe a vision that in his head he might have thought was even like um, holistic and uh, devoid of contradictions, whether he was right about that or not. Um, and he also, possibly unlike any executive ever since, had any actual executive power. That can be argued, but it uh, there's a real uh, there's a real argument for that. And then uh, you know, Ford, they still don't do it for reasons we discussed. We theorize anyway. And then we left you, dear listener, with our foreskin, America's foreskin, Jimmy Carter's foreskin, <laughs> dangling from a cliff. We're all hanging on by our limp dicks. So that's where we're at. Mr. Limp Dick himself, Jimmy Carter, fucking rube peanut farmer shithead Jesus yeah. guy, comes in on the wave of the, you know, post-Watergate uh, disenchantment with the political establishment, uh, you know, obvious need to switch party to the Democrats, bring them back, uh, and uh, that's that's where we're at. Yeah, yeah. And I think before we go describing uh, Jimmy Carter's dick, which we will in detail. Great detail. Great detail. Um, I think we should uh, talk about a little thing called neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> right. And neoliberalism is uh, one of those classic things that we all like to say. And uh, even more so like to give bad definitions. <laughs> of. Yes. And, and we're going to do for neoliberalism. What we did in the last episode for inflation, which is uh, give you a really concise, crystal clear explanation of what it is, how it works, and uh, how to sift through the bullshit about it. Which you have like a fucking diamond shining in your head now because mm -hmm. you listened to the last episode. Um, we're going to do exactly that for uh, neoliberalism. Yes. So, you know. We need to first bring it back to Gilgamesh if we really, truly want to understand. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, so I, the Great Flood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I mean, let's just let's, let's get straight to the Sumerian text. No, but like, <laughs> so I, I'm just out of curiosity, Budya. I, I'm I'm always curious about like at what time these kind of words come in vogue at you know colleges and things like that. Yeah. Um, in your classes, right? So not just amongst like people chatting okay, in yeah. your Elizabeth Warren group chat. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But like, <laughs> but like, you know, you know, in your actual like economics or finance classes, did the term neoliberalism come up and uh did they did they offer any sort of definition? <laughs> no. No, right? I, I kind of figured that was probably the case. No, I mean like the uh, Finance classes and economics classes were mostly taught with the assumption that what is known as neoliberalism or supply side economics is like the is the natural state of things. Like we didn't I didn't learn who like Keynes was, obviously did not learn who Marx was, right? Or like any sort of competing, you know, economic system. They might have said, Oh, in, you know, nineteen sixty, you know, 
this is kind of how the Fed did it. And then, hey, suddenly they decided to do it some other way, right? But they didn't, like, define it as, like, an actual, like, shift in ideology or, like, really any, like, yeah. the politics were really removed from it. And it was like, this is just how the world works. Yeah, and I, I think when I was in college, this has been around the year 2000, right? It was explained to us, not using the term neoliberalism. I'm not entirely sure when that even became in vogue popularly, right? Yeah. But uh, using the term of shock therapy development mm -hmm. versus ISI development or import substitution mm -hmm. uh, development, yeah. right? right? And, um, you know, we were given sort of the bare bones of how it was supposed to work, but because I was taking this through political science economics classes, uh, we were shown it via graph, right? Because uh, yeah. nothing can be explained in political science without a graph, right? And uh, the graph was literally like, look, the problem with it, the economy is you just don't let markets take control and we got to strip away all those, you know, uh, invasive government inputs like a minimum wage and, you know, fair labor standards. Right? <laughs> if we strip all that away, right, they'd show you this graph, right? And it was just the, the economy. This is the line. Right? Yeah. And the economy uh, tanks, right? You take all that away, the economy's just going to go straight into the toilet. But if you follow that graph, it's going to pop back up on the other side stronger than ever, right? <laughs> and they would just show you that graph. And whenever you asked questions like, yeah, but like, how does that work? Or when has that ever worked in reality? They would just point at the graph and they'd be like, but you saw the line, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> the line went up. So. So, I mean, you got to fail to succeed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that was like as good a definition as we ever got, which uh, if you're listening to this and saying that's a dog shit definition uh you're correct yeah <laughs> but that's about as good as we got um and i think the reality is that people have a really hard time defining neoliberalism because if you ever compare any sort of textbook definition to practice it very quickly starts to run into some problems right so i mean textbook definitionally you would say that it is this belief in the natural functioning of markets as being the most efficient way to organize a society and that the main goal of society should be getting out of the way of those markets natural operation right mm -hmm. now uh people then would say yeah but like all the people that seem to believe in it like believe in giving massive like fed payouts to banks and stuff like really believe in like consolidated like <laughs> top-down state power uh, yeah. to be used in a particular way right yeah yeah you know like <laughs> and um and i think that gets to kind of the problem of textbook definitions versus real life right which is when economists like Milton Friedman, you know, their project was breaking away from Keynesianism, right? Uh, they were using loosely the ideas of uh, one of the international community's original posters, uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek, right? To, yeah, right. To do so. <laughs> A guy who'd be totally forgotten otherwise and, you know. Uh, whose uh, books suck. Um, but, you know, they just needed, like, some sort of footing to stand on, right? And we're basically saying, like, we should reorient the state towards the solely towards the maintenance of capital and particularly finance capital. Uh, and we should use the state to force this new order onto a population that everybody agreed. Milton Friedman, you know, young Alan Greenspan, everybody involved, all the Chicago boys agreed. Uh, nobody would want. Or yeah, like. <laughs> right. It would be grossly unpopular. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, in 1973, you know, their first big experiment. And this was, to, of course, to go to Chile. <laughs> and uh, there they found exactly the circumstances that they might want for this, which was a coup uh, led by 
by a military dictator who would come in, didn't have to listen to anybody's you know belly aching about uh, destroying you know all the social functions of the state. Uh, all these University of Chicago economists went down there, advised Augusto Pinochet, right, and uh, implemented this program. Right now, it immediately tanked the Chilean economy and it never recovered until actually Pinochet started to push back against these neoliberal <laughs> dictates later. But story for another time. The real moment, though, was in 1975 when in New York, a guy named Walt Riston, right, who is the head of Citibank, comes up with this idea and he gets all capital together and he says, look, New York City has to keep borrowing money from us, right, in order to keep the city functioning to pay all these high union wages. What if we don't give them the money? Which was a very shocking idea at the yeah. time because unheard you know, of. Yeah, to to not give a municipality or you know as like the state, um, you know, funding it was like kind of considered risk free in the way like they can yeah. borrow as much as they want and then they can you know get it back because the assets that you're backing it against yeah. is like you know the entire you know, city, especially in New York, right? So New York depended on you know a system where they would just completely borrow from you know lenders and it w- it was out of bounds to even consider that they would band together and say no, we're not like you're gonna not have your interest on the bond is going to be like too crazy like we're not gonna you know fund this yeah and the thing is is that like you know maybe some small towns and things like that had gone bankrupt before but the implication was always yeah a city like new york was a safe haven for things like bonds and stuff because if the worst case scenario happened and the city couldn't meet its debt obligations of course the federal government would step in and uh you know, prevent a massive bankruptcy of a major of the not a yeah. the major American city. Right? It was it's a it's a risk. It's basically like risk free and for like all parties. If that's how it was thought of, at least. Yeah, yeah and maybe we didn't. You know, it was well fine. We didn't give um, uh, Gerald Ford enough credit for having limp enough dick to <laughs> not do the obvious thing that he. My, you know, that probably most people would have expected and obey capital. Yeah. Well, basically what Gerald Ford did in 75, and this is uh, famously immortalized, I think, on the uh, front page of the New York Daily News, uh, was New York City then went to, the politicians of New York went to Ford and was like, bail us out, <laughs> right? Yeah. And as the Daily News reported, Ford to city, drop dead, <laughs> right? And so Ford refused, right? And so New York City had to reorganize on the terms of the banking community, yep, the financial creditors, the, the people right? who the had a claim on New York. And so what happened was is municipal workers immediately got wage freezes, then pay cuts, and then layoffs, right? Uh, cutbacks were taken immediately to all the social infrastructure of New York, most importantly, the MTA, which is why, by the way, the MTA uh, looks like shit and has continued to decline. Uh, yeah, it's, since. it's not like a it's not like a cutesy thing that all of the trains look like they're from like 1975 <laughs> yeah. and 1980. You know, that's that's just reality. <laughs> yeah. They also moved towards, you know, various structures that were more in line with neoliberal thinking which was a public structure such as the MTA should run off a fee-based system, which is not just, it's not even a flat tax, it's a regressive tax yeah. where it's charging the poorest people right. uh, more. In yeah, because everyone the pays the same, the same price. If you have a if you have a million dollars in yeah. cash or if you have, you know, $2.75 in cash, you're paying two seventy five. And And other thing being, if you have a million dollars, you have other options where if you only have two seventy five, you only got the one, right? So it's a captured audience that you're essentially exploiting. Um, 
they also cut city taxes to uh, you know corporations, right? And the corporate income tax in New York dropped precipitously while increasing all user taxes to people in the city, right? Uh, essentially, what they were doing is realigning the class forces in the city to you know, favor capital in a much more uh, serious and overwhelming way, right? Mm-hmm. And now, so David Harvey, uh, cool guy, and his book, which is must-read, by the way, if you yep. find this interesting, is uh, A Brief History of Neoliberalism. He sums up the situation or the experiment in New York like this. It established the principle that in the event of a conflict, the integrity of financial institutions and bondholders' returns on the one hand and the well-being of the citizens on the other the former was to be privileged. It emphasized that the role of the government was to create a good business climate rather than look to the needs and well-being of the population at large, right? Right. This is achieved in practice, not by just like a shift in ideology, which is backing it up. And that's just being, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pushed on people at all levels of society throughout this, starting in this period and then into the 80s with even just like out of Ronald Reagan's mouth. But like, and that's one thing. And then there's the conservative ideology, which sort of confuses and sells it in different ways. But like at a fundamental level, what happened in New York was power changed hands. Yeah. They literally, you know, went from a some kind of democratic system or something that looked like a democratic system where people, you know, of New York elected a city government that made like decisions about how to spend its money to now it's the bankers literally making the most widespread policy decisions because the city owes them money and needs their cash. Yeah, in a very real way, bankers, like, seized the city, right? Yeah. Like, without any real democracy, right? So they like, like, now we can use New York just as our, you know, crucible. We can do whatever we want hmm. with this thing. Exactly, and the thing is, is that, you know, we don't want to uh, engage in any sort of fantasy. I mean, you know, in America, we always like to believe things are either this or that, right? Prior to this, it wasn't as if capital wasn't in control in New York, but the thing was, is capital wanted total control, yeah. right? And to them, even letting slip a little bit of power is too much. Now, prior to, you know, the uh, essentially coup in New York, right, uh, there was this thing called the Powell Memo, which got leaked to the press and became very famous. Now, there was a corporate lawyer named Lewis Powell sat on a bunch of important boards, including uh, R.J. Reynolds, I believe, he got commissioned by the National Chamber of Commerce to write up a game plan for how capital was going to reassert itself in America to stop the rising tide of socialism, right? To finally turn back the New Deal. Exactly. And Lewis Powell, he basically uh, writes up this game plan, which you can read online, and you'll be amazed as you read through it of like, did that, did that. It's just a checklist of things that have all been accomplished, by the way. But, you know, so Powell argues that business needs to stop its policy of appeasement towards workers, right? Uh, He says, quote, the time has come. Indeed, it is long overdue for the wisdom, ingenuity, and resources of American business to be marshaled against those who would destroy it. He argues for the creation of think tanks to reshape public opinion. He argues that business needs to, through their financial, you know, contributions and stuff, take over departments, you know, colleges and universities to change what's being taught at universities. I hate to tell everybody that's all happened. All right. You know, Uh, he argues for, you know, just increased interest in, you know, politics. Right. On the part of business. Right. And essentially creating a unified front. Right. Against what he saw is, you know, the demonic force of labor. Right. Now, 
this was leaked fairly shortly after he wrote it, right? And you're thinking, that must have fucking ruined this guy's career to hear this. Uh, actually, in January of 1972, Richard Nixon put him on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> and Lewis Powell is the uh, big factor uh, and one of the big arguers. I think he even wrote the opinions on two really important cases that come out in the mid to late 70s. Uh, both of which uh, enshrine corporate personhood in the electoral process. So as much as people get angry about like recent court decisions about like, oh, they'll let any sort of money flow into campaigns. Lewis Powell is actually like the like <laughs> one of the big moving factors of the 70s to really get that ball rolling, to get that train rolling. Um, shortly after that, uh, you know, all of a sudden, like little mushrooms popping out of a turd, all these groups started to be created in Washington. The Heritage Foundation, the Business Roundtable, most importantly, that we still get to fucking hear from today, right? Uh, oh, Grover Norquist Group was the the Tax Policy Institute, whatever the fuck it was called. Uh, and another one that was important at the time, it's since fallen away, but it was called the Trilateral Commission, which is mm. uh, founded primarily by David Rockefeller, uh, but was an important liberal think tank of neoliberal thought, right? And uh, staffed the entirety of the Jimmy Carter administration, by the way, as like trilateral top to bottom. Um, but the Trilateral Commission, uh, they one of their first acts was to commission this report in 1976 where Trilateral Commission was supposed to be a joint think tank for American, European, and Japanese intellectuals concerned about the direction their you know, populations were moving. And uh, they had this report called The Crisis of Democracy. Uh, they had somebody write a bit about Europe, a bit about Japan, and they hired a guy who, uh, those of us who remember the Iraq War will remember fondly, Samuel Huntington, a just total piece of shit out of fucking Harvard, uh, author of The Clash of Civilizations, uh, hired him to write the American side, right? And in his report, he talked about how just a little bit of uh, democracy is going too far, right? So, quote, the essence of the democratic surge of the 1960s was a general challenge to the existing systems of authority, public and private. People no longer felt the same obligation to obey those whom they had previously considered superior to themselves in age, rank, status, expertise, character, or talents. Huntington described this as an excess of democracy that produced problems for the governor governability of democracy in the 1970s and urged that desirable limits to the extension of political democracy be instituted. Basically, he argued that any sort of popular mandate was irrelevant. He talked about how we need to go back to the time when presidents ruled from backdoor meetings with, you know, the heads of corporations, as should exist, right, as opposed to listening to democratic pressure, right? All this is a long way of saying that neoliberalism, per white people have a hard time defining it, is part of the reason why we have a hard time wrapping our heads around things like inflation and stuff like that is it's portrayed as a strictly economic orthodoxy mm -hmm. about how economics should run in the world, right, in a perfectly functioning market, right, a market economy, when in fact neoliberalism is class warfare. Yeah. It is planned, organized, strategic warfare to transfer power from the working class to the capitalist class so that capital has total control over every element of society. Transfer that little bit of power yeah. that the working class Yeah, not had, to imply the working class ever had power over capital, but had, that... Had a foot in the door as of the 1930s, and that foot was kind of wedged in the door of power mm -hmm. for, like, the next 30 years. Yeah. And, you know, they were, you know, trying to think up how to get rid of that ever since, and started in earnest, you know, uh, 
in like yeah, like the early seventies. Yeah, so enter in nineteen seventy six our Olympic hero Jimmy Carter, uh, a guy who um, people forget because he's maybe one of our most forgettable presidents. But uh, for people trying to understand who if Jimmy he, Carter if was, he today, hadn't, if he wasn't still impossibly alive, people would have forgotten him. But he keeps like yeah. popping up as a news story every once in a while because <laughs> he just won't die. Yeah, <laughs> but like, yeah, if he had like kicked the bucket a while ago, no one would remember his name. Yeah, our most unkillable president. I mean. I, I've heard several accounts that apparently, like, Bill Clinton is, like, totally senile at this point. Like, he's, like, gone, like has, like, dementia or something. Oh, wow. Uh, Jimmy Carter, like, still, like, cognizant. Still, still around. around. Yeah. I mean, obviously, George H.W. Bush has since died, but was, like, a vegetable for most of that. And, you know, George W., I mean, who can tell, right? But, like, uh, Carter. Still Reagan kicking. you never saw after he yeah. left office, even though he didn't. Died to like the mid two thousands. Um, yeah, that was crazy. Really, he died in like two thousand three or four. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but he was. Yeah. You know, he I mean, was he looked like down and out in like his second term. Man, I remember I was out of college. I think when Reagan yeah. died finally, and I was so mad that we couldn't do like a party at the college. <laughs> yeah, but like no one had seen him because yeah, he yeah. was a basically a vegetable since yeah. like nineteen eighty six. Yeah. So yeah. like, uh, but yeah, no Carter. He keeps like doing things. Yeah, for some reason, the man's unkillable. Um, look, maybe he traded something for something, right? Mm. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, Jimmy Carter, I think for people who understand today who are young and don't remember anything about Jimmy Carter, I to be clear, I was not alive when Jimmy Carter was president. <laughs> yeah, hey, let's not date ourselves but, too much. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Jimmy Carter is Bill Clinton before Bill Clinton. Yeah. Running against Ford, he takes the right position on Ford every time. He attacks Ford from the right every time. Uh, Ford is as flummoxed by this as would be George H.W. Bush and Bob Dole. Um, you know, when Ford in interjects into the Boston busing, you know, debate that like, uh, look, uh, I, I just don't think the state should be involved in these issues. Uh, Jimmy Carter responds by coming in and saying, you know, I think the ethnic purity of neighborhoods needs to be preserved. <laughs> right? You know, like stuff like that, yeah. you know. The state uh, should be involved in segregation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I heard uh, uh, somebody was talking about Jimmy Carter and said, you know, uh, he had this like, you know, uh, legacy or whatever at the time as being this uh, non-racist Democrat. But like, but you have to understand that in the context of Georgia, where he was yeah. governor, he was like compared to Democrats in Georgia, he was less racist than them. But by a national context, would have still been pretty racist, <laughs> like, even in 1976. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, you know, Carter has uh, pretty strictly conservative ideas. He's actually the first one to, like, really militarize the border and stuff like that, uh, to blame unemployment and things like that on uh, illegal immigrants coming across the border and whatnot. Uh, but he also is uh, a completely pliable idiot essentially like he can be told what to do and he'll do it and in comes a new fed chairman right and so they're gonna bring in a new fed chairman david rockefeller and walt riston go and talk with jimmy carter and walt Riston, our hero from new york go and talk to jimmy carter and they say you know who should put his fed chair our good friend paul volcker <laughs> and paul volcker comes in and almost immediately upon seizing the Fed chair office, right? And this is very important, the timing, because it's just funny. October of 1979, the election, <laughs> next presidential election, November 1980. In October of 1979, Paul Volcker institutes the Volcker shock, which is 
he immediately jacks up interest rates. I think he jacks them up from, uh, they were at like 1% to 2%. I think he jacks them 10% right off the bat. And then over the course of the next few years, jacks it up to 20%. All right? Yeah. Essentially, these insane levels at which, like, just the level of shock is incredible. Like, the change is so fast. Mm -hmm. It's going to send immediate ripples. But also, the, the, the if you did it up to 5% that fast, it still caused, like, a yeah. massive mm-hmm. economic shock. But then... To even get to twenty, is like basically like you can't. A bank cannot borrow money. Like it's mm-hmm. there's no economic scenario where you would want to borrow a single fucking dollar. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And uh, basically, Volcker in uh, right before he institutes these changes, uh, he tells the press that uh, the lifestyle or let me see if I find the exact quote because it's so good. Um. The standard of living of the average American has to decline. I don't think he can escape that. <laughs> right? That wasn't what he said in his secret volcano layer or meeting like that. That's what he told the New York Times when they asked him, <laughs> what do you think about uh, economic policy in America? He said, you know what? I think everybody needs to eat shit, actually. And I'm going to make that happen. And it's too damn good for too damn long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, right? So this is, you know, this is the same thing that basically... Powell said yes like last week yes um that yeah wages have to come down and this is in some ways should be shocking to some people because like part of our like the political fantasy in this country is that both parties are at least trying to sell you on and have over our lives and before that been trying to sell the American people on who can raise the standard of living more. Like this is the, you know, a basic sort of understanding of how people think politics works. Maybe is like, they've got these ideas. These other people have these other ideas. Uh, you know, we get mad when, um, people like govern badly and cause, uh, recessions to happen or gas prices to go up. Thus, arming our standard of living and the truth is um the actual project happening at the top for a very long time has been to make you poorer yes not like even bad you know we we oscillate between the parties and the people who we imagine are in power and think like and then have different narratives of like why america has gotten poorer and poorer it's got you know and you know, if you're a, a ignorant Republican, it's like, well, it was the it was, you know, uh, Clinton and Obama. Thanks, Obama. You know, <laughs> or, it, you know, if you're an ignorant Democrat, you're like, oh, it was uh, Reagan and Bush, you know, and it's that that's where that's where we faltered and where America's going. And it's like the truth is like the, the plan from the top for a long time has been to immiserate you. Yeah. And. To immiserate you by transferring the political power, just the power to do things, right, by not being in total poverty and in hawk, right, uh, to transfer that power to the capitalist class, right, you know, to give them that power over you. And again, it's really important to note that Paul Volcker, we mentioned this in the previous episode, Paul Volcker was extremely aware of what he was doing. He carried around an index card in which he would have, you know, upcoming union contract, you know, uh, uh, settlements that were coming up, right? You know, he'd have notes in there about whether he thought that they were going to win wage increases and stuff like that. And he would adjust interest rates accordingly. 
by 1982, uh, 60% of all unions engaged in contract disputes in 1982 either accepted a wage freeze or wage losses in their contracts, right? That was a significant change of affairs from a decade prior, yeah. right? And, you know, to be clear, because, like, this this jacking the interest rate up just caused a, an incredible recession yeah. overnight. Yeah, overnight employment just skyrocketed. Now, well, unemployment. Right? Yeah, unemployment, sorry. Yeah, and, and the thing was is that, you know, Fed policy prior to that had been about trying to maintain unemployment at stable rates, right? Meaning we don't want to repeat the Great Depression, which led to a lot of political instability and stuff like that. So what we're going to do is if we see unemployment climb too much, we'll loosen controls on money, right? If we see it drop too much, this is the funny part, we'll increase controls on money, <laughs> right? Because at the same time, they do want that reserved army of unemployed people to help put pressure on wages and drive them down. But a, rel a controlled and yeah. relatively small reserve yeah. army, enough to keep some labor discipline, like the threat that you could be out on your ass, uh, mm -hmm. but, you know. Not, yeah. It wasn't enough. Yeah, and unemployment was hitting over 10% in the early 80s, which is, you know, had been unseen since the Great Depression, right? I mean, this was stuff that, like, the whole economic discipline prior to that had been like, no, we, we don't do this because that would lead to the instability that would cause another new deal, right? But luckily, uh, Paul Volcker, he had, he had pushed this through in October of 79. It, of course, instantly tanked the economy. So Jimmy Carter, for a whole year, was running on I Made Your Life not just worse, extremely worse, like very bad. Uh, please vote for me in 1980. Uh, and a cowboy came riding in from the West, right? And, it, uh, just, and he really, it's not just that like this happened and he kind of haplessly mm -hmm. let it happen and the wool got pulled over his eyes and his, the people around him did this to the economy and he's a, he's a moron. That's partially true, but they did sell him. They must've sold him on part of it. The, the one sort of justification for it that like the growth in, you know, union power, labor power, wages has led to like a decadence in America and also caused inflation. The two things we talked about in the last episode, because, you know, in the 70s, key political issue is stagflation. That, so that is a reality that's happening. So they, someone sells Carter on this idea that this is caused by these wages and that also especially especially they sell him on the decadence part mm -hmm. because he literally famously comes to america at this time and says listen you've all gotten too fat and happy that's what's caused stagflation and the oil crisis and all of all the bad things and watergate and everything mm -hmm. that's been troubling america it's because you know to sum it up uh you're life expectancy is too high your standard yeah. of living is too high you need to tighten we all need to tighten you're our living belts. decadently because you're not living paycheck to paycheck worried of being on the street at any moment and this is the it's psychotic that like an american president would literally like come think think a guy who was so high on his own supply and so like morally uh self-righteous that he thought he could come out and just say that shit to america mm -hmm. uh in incredible but like you know that uh and presumably, like, his being bought into that piece of it uh, has to do with him just going like, yeah, go fuck over the American worker. I won't I won't even try to get in your way, even if I could. Yeah. And essentially, you know, uh, as you might imagine, uh, Carter gets absolutely crushed in 1980 by Ronald Reagan, who's like, look, 
I'm just as racist as that guy. Maybe even more so. I'm just as big a freak as that guy. Maybe even more so. Uh, but you know what? Uh, instead of giving you that idiot speech that no politician should ever give, I'm just going to lie to you and say, like, no, nah, it'll get better. Yeah. It won't, but I, I'll say it. Right? It's morning in America, right? And uh, we're going to make it great again and all those things, right? And, you know, Reagan comes in and he essentially pairs up the Volcker recession. He pairs that with a vicious attack on organized labor from the executive branch down, right? Which begins, of course, in 81 with his crushing of the PATCO strike, right? So air traffic controllers go on strike. Ronald Reagan uses the military to break the strike, and he actually throws a bunch of the PATCO leaders in jail (laughs) Um, and essentially signals to all of corporate America to the extent that labor law was ever recognized or, you know, followed in the United States, that will no longer be the case. And that has been the case ever since, right? So, uh, companies violate, you know, labor law at will, you know, as far as union organizing, you know, retaliation, all that kind of stuff, violate it at will, right? All that stuff is still technically illegal, right? But the law is not a magic spell book. It is about power, <laughs> yeah. right? And it has ever since been the law of the land. Companies can do whatever they want to break labor, right? Um, and so, of course, union membership. So union membership since the Taft-Hartley Act and what, 54 or whatever, had uh, union density had declined ever since then, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for reasons that you should just listen to Ending the Myth to figure out, uh, the, you know, during the Cold War, the U.S. dealt essentially a death blow to, like, labor organizing. <laughs> uh, and then by 75, I think, is when its actual total membership begins its decline and has been in decline ever since, right? Um, these crushing defeats to labor brought about by Reagan in the 80s, of course, are a big part of it because if you're in a union, at some point you start saying, why am I paying dues to just take a wage cut every fucking year? You know? Which and is a valid question. It yeah. is, in fact, a valid question. Yeah. Right? yeah. You know? And the union movement, you know, having embraced... Failure breeds failure. You know, retreat breeds retreat. Yeah. Yeah. And the union movement having embraced business unionism in the 1970s at hilariously just the right time, which is that uh, actually labor and capital can coexist with one another and friendship uh, was not in any way prepared for the onslaught that came. Right. And just like I said, just got crushed at every level. Radical radicalism had been driven out of the labor movement starting in the 50s anyway like yeah listen to ending the myth explain why that all fell away a long thing that they just like (laughs) it was a a hollow shell of itself not ready to put up a fight and i mean is that the only reason how does you know how does like powell and how do we think powell and volker and the other people involved do they really know are they just taking a gamble that this is going to work like because you know you have the 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 Great Depression, the labor militancy that had built up for decades, and then the, the Great Depression like gets its foot a foot of power in the door in the in the economy and to some extent in elected government. There's a New Deal consensus that like okay, fine, we'll leave let your foot be in the door for a while. They keep pushing back again. There they you know there's plans you know in the ensuing decades to drive like the radicals out of the labor movement. But basically there is this consensus and. As you said, in part, this had you know they had capital had not struck back against uh, labor and tried to cause another Great Depression to liquidate everybody and like drive down wages out of fear that it could you know that could cause uh, labor radicalism to rise, cause the labor movement to resurge and 
take more power instead of getting less. Like that's the mm-hmm. that's the dice you're rolling. It's like okay, we're gonna fuck people, and we're gonna hope that that sticks, and we just uh, dilute the power of labor in the economy rather than we fuck people and they turn around with pitchforks and and advance on us even farther than they had with the New Deal consensus. And to some extent, like that was the deal why the New Deal consensus held for 30, 40 years was like, okay, we're just going to like let this be. We'll chip away at it. But because like who knows what could happen if we try to push back, the Soviet Union is still a going concern at this mm-hmm. time. Um, like the, so, you know, theoretically like the threat of, uh, it's cooled off a lot and, you mm-hmm. know, we can talk about the state of the cold war, but like, it's still there. Uh, the threat of like, uh, communist movements or something like, are they just, do they just happen to be right. Is the time just like, right. That they like, they call it and they, they pull it off and they just win. Are they just zealots who are like, we're going to do this no matter what. Uh, and they just happen to get lucky, like, or is it that they know, like, ah, ha, ha, the work we've done that's been done for decades to weaken the labor movement, it's now ripe to be toppled over, you know, like, yeah. What do you think? What do we think? You know. Well, on a side, on a quick side note, uh, humorously, I we talked in the previous episode about the sort of weakness of the American dollar and speculation after we floated the dollar, right? Which always happens if you float a currency, right? Because there's a time period where people have to kind of figure out what they think it's worth, right? They agreed upon idea of what it's worth. One of the people that was uh, kind of hilariously engaging in that speculative bubble uh, through buying like commodities with dollars and reselling them uh, was the Soviet Union who created a bunch of um, front organizations that weren't like attached to the Soviet Union and use those to make like large grain purchases and stuff in the United States that they then resold. Um, very funny stuff. Fortune magazine has a big panic piece on it in the seventies. That's very funny. But, um, but no, I, I think that basically what you're talking about is like, this is extremely risky behavior. Yeah. Right. I mean, we gotta be clear. That's very risky behavior. Tanking, deliberately tanking the American economy is risky for all kinds of reasons. Okay. Like there's this kernel of like, why, why have we been sticking to the new deal consensus? Well, we could have if we don't. Maybe we'll have fucking communism. Maybe they'll kill us. Yeah. All. Or at the very <laughs> which was least, the logic of creating the new deal in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> if that doesn't happen, you're talking about tank deliberately tanking the American economy. Like yeah. a lot of rich people could theoretically lose some of their bag as well. Don't worry, they didn't. Yeah, right. But like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I, it's extremely risky behavior, and I think that's why a lot of this is why you can't understand history as like you know, oh, piece to piece to piece, right? A lot of strands had to converge for this to happen, right? So you needed a guy in office who didn't care about his political future at all and was also kind of an idiot, Jimmy Carter, right? You needed American capital to get organized. In 1970, they weren't at the level of organization they had reached by 1979, right? So all that stuff, you know, about creating the business around, all those kind of things, right? They had gotten extremely organized. Uh, In the year prior, 1978, the Business Roundtable led a massive propaganda campaign to just destroy the Consumer Protection Agency, which was a thing that was, you know, in Congress about to get passed, extremely popular. I think it had like 70% approval. And the Business Roundtable single-handedly by just throwing money into massive ad campaigns and all that kind of stuff, fucking within a year reversed that fucking approval rating and got it killed in Congress, right? You know, those kind of things were signaling that maybe now was the time to strike, right? 
but you still needed feeling themselves. Yeah, you still needed somebody who was willing to engage in the risky behavior. Now, Carter had initially gone to David Rockefeller and wanted him to be the Fed chair, right? And David Rockefeller basically told Carter, no, like, A, look at my name or whatever. Like, you know, come on. Like, you can't have a Rockefeller do this. <laughs> like, first off, <laughs> like, you know, what we're going to do, you can't put a Rockefeller in charge of. Paul Volcker, they actually kind of like dug out of a backwater in the Midwest and they were like, let's get this guy. All right. Nobody knows who he is. Right. We trust him, though. We've been working with him, but nobody knows who he is. Anything like that. He can be the unknown, you know, unknown, unfaced person pushing this. No downside right? for him, right? He's not risking yeah. a political career future. He's he like, doesn't, all want, doesn't want to be him. in politics. Yeah, anyways, right? So, you know, worst case scenario, well, he's got to go to a make work job at fucking some, you know, bullshit foundation that the Rockefellers have set up, right? You know, mm -hmm. so it's all upside for him, right? And so you need this like sort of constellation of events to come by, right? Like the fact that the union had already been in decline a little bit by then, right? So, Obviously, they had or they felt like they had already kind of broken labor's back, right? And all that they need to do now is just fucking kill them, right? All that kind of stuff. All that had to come into play, but there was still a lot of concern at the time about what might happen, right? And luckily, Ronald Reagan comes in, who is, you know, through his years of being a puppet of GE, you know, when they would like shove their hand directly up his ass and have him like mouth, you know, all their anti-union bromides was coming in perfectly aware that his job was to destroy the union movement, right? And so all these pieces kind of came together in just the right constellation mm -hmm. to make this work out, right? And, he, and it did. He had run for the Republican nomination uh, mm -hmm. in 76. Yeah. And done been very considered well. A, uh, considered a rising star front runner since at least 64. Yeah. You know, like, since, yeah. You know, he was, he was always going to be the next try at a Barry Goldwater. Yeah. So, you know, he's governor governor of California, governor of a, of the of a huge important state. Uh you know, an appealing uh uh ham actor. Like he's got all this and he's totally on board with this anti-union stuff. So when you see him do uh fairly well in 76, you know, where people like were on board. Uh, yeah, you can see, you can imagine capital thinking like, okay, this guy could get in there. And then that cinches the deal, you know? Mm. So you're bet. So I guess you're betting on that working out, you know? Yeah. And so the other thing too, is, I mean, one other risk is if you jack up interest rates, it's like, yeah, now the bank can collect at higher rates. Now this had all been pre, you know, before they did this, it's all been presaged by Carter specifically going to American farmers specifically, but to Americans generally and launching the Buy American campaign where he said, look, you know, not in these words, but uh, the American economy has been destabilized by the fact that we're having this international realignment because the American empire is declining while other, you know, competitors are rising, right? We have to team up to buy American and if, fuck it, if you got to do it on credit, you should, Right. So he convinced all these farmers to just, he's like, now is the time to buy heavy machinery produced by Caterpillar or whatever, right? They all go super heavy in debt, right? Uh, he convinced a lot of American businesses and stuff to do this too. It's very funny. The second that Volcker shock hits, right, a lot of those people are hit with rising interest rates from the banks that they're low, that they're borrowed money from, and they all go out of business. It wipes out like a whole generation of American farmers. Now, there's a whole story of like farm consolidation, farmland consolidation that basically dates to this time period where essentially it's now all owned by like equity groups and stuff. I mean, all those people that were trying to like, 
you know, look through the tea leaves about why Bill Gates was buying all this farmland, really have no idea what's happening with American farmland. It's all owned by like private equity and stuff yeah. like that. Like it's just pure investment, like financial speculation, right? And that really begins in this time period, right? There's a, a sort of primitive accumulation that happens through the dispossession of like all these farmers that Jimmy Carter told to go into mountains of debt and then jacked up interest rates on, right? Uh, just another thing. I mean, the, the guy is a piece of shit. <laughs> like, you know, um, at the same time, uh, you know, banks, yeah, you can raise interest rates. Banks can now maybe collect debts at a higher interest rate, right? Uh, which in theory is a windfall for the banks. But there's always that question because you've also created a situation where workers are unemployed and things like, what if they can't pay, right? doesn't fucking matter if the monthly payment went up 15% if they couldn't make the original payment, right? All of a sudden, now you just have non-payment, right? And that, of course, was a problem. It was solved through, again, a sort of system of primitive accumulation where banks were able to seize assets. But even then, those assets are devaluing, right? Yeah. So you do have a potential, too, of creating, you know, through trying to shift power to capital – creating deep instability within, you know, financial markets that then could cause a, you know, even deeper recession going into an economic depression, right? And they were saved by a, by a few different things, right? Domestically, they were saved by a forcible uh, transfusion of money into finance markets because the economy is essentially is now moving to a completely dominated by finance economy, right? Uh, through things like forcing workers to take 401ks, Right. Something that under Carter, they literally had to change the laws of the United States and banking regulations to make a reality, right? Uh, when so they now taking some of your wages that are being lowered overall, and instead of it going to like some kind of guaranteed pension, which are all going to get fucked in the coming years anyway, mm-hmm. putting it, making you, selling you on, and in some cases, essentially forcing you. Yeah to invest in the stock market for some fucking reason. Yeah. So you essentially are doing a forced infusion of capital to finance. Yeah. <laughs> right. Your wages are now going to <laughs> juice the stock. Now, of, uh, five fortune 500 company. So when the banks went to Congress and basically shoved this through, you know, place, you know, groups like Citibank, like Walt Riston, who was testifying for this shit would say, look, Everybody knows that this is not a retirement plan because how could it be? Everybody knows this is Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, this would not work, right, as retirement. We all acknowledge that. This is just but we also know everybody in America has a pension. And so this is just that little cherry on top of your pension. Get a little risk in your life. Yeah. So essentially 401ks, the law gets rewritten so that 401ks cuz previously it was like illegal to invest retirement funds into, you know, dangerous speculative ventures right because we've done that in the past and it doesn't work right and so all that got rewritten and uh you know within a few years right they collapse the economy they start rewriting all these union contracts and one of the first things to come out of those contracts is your fucking pension right to be replaced with what 401 fucking k Right. And now I don't know if you've ever I've never had a job that's had a pension. Right. I don't know anybody that has a job with a fucking pension. I don't even know what like, pensions invest in or what what is you hilarious. How, how it so, even hilariously you couldn't money. So you couldn't speculatively invest pensions either. And then under the Clinton administration they rewrote all of that. So now hedge funds have all your pension money. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's so funny. That like money your question is like, wait, what did pensions invest in? The answer is that, that in a lot of Times they didn't, you know, or they they invested in like bonds and shit, the safest shit, because like that's all they were allowed to, because it was just like this place to store money, mm. you know, for you to have at a later date, because you were working. It was 
the company or the union like making sure you had a retirement but you know that you earned that you paid into in a in a fixed pen you know that you would keep getting a paycheck basically even after you retired right and that was guaranteed to you uh so yeah so ultimately like a bunch of people worked like 40 years for their whole life paying into a pension that would theoretically was supposed to pay them out for the rest of their life and then just saw like you know a retro they retconned their 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 uh Like in all these union negotiations, they got their their previous wages from decades earlier basically retconned away. Yeah, you know, and I mean that's an important thing. I mean, because obviously the media and companies didn't frame it like that, but you know, pensions are part of your wage. Yeah, right. You know, an agreed upon part of your wage to take that away is literally wage theft, right? But they just did it on a mass level, right? And they replaced it with a four hundred one k, which is literally a financial transfer. It's a tax that you pay for living in America and working in America directly to finance capital, right? Yeah. Every longitudinal study of 401ks, right, shows that at best, it's the equivalent of a savings account, right? Like yeah. you get the same return over time as you would have had in a savings account. A lot of them show that it has not been as good as a savings account over time. Well, yeah, because they take fees and stuff, like yep. not, not off the profits, but just off of the principal Transactions. balance. Yeah. Right? And yeah. also they've, they've lost value in the various yep. crashes and the yep. crises since then. Yeah, yeah, the market's been too like volatile for it to have like held a value you know, retirement payments from the company. I mean, the company would literally directly mail you a check as part of your pension, which is an agreed upon contractual amount, right? The company, of course, in their pension fund is maybe investing or something, but they lose the money. That's on them. Yeah, right? they, they got to find that money. Amount, right? right. They've transferred that burden to the magical workings of the market now. Yeah. And if you get money back on your pension or not, that will just determine, I guess, on how well the market does. Yeah. Right. And so that's a transfer of burden. It's also, like I said, a direct just infusion of cash to financial capital, right? But at the same time, it also turns everybody into a little capitalist. Yep. Right? It is now invested in how the market does, right? Not enough that it represents some significant share of market value, right? But for you, the, you know, uh, like I watched over the last month, uh, my pension go from, you know, I mean, this is or my pension, Jesus, my 401k, which has accrued over like 15 years now, 16 years now. I watched it go from $84,000 to under $70,000. Yeah, my 401k you know. like uh, lost a quarter of its value this year. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So we're talking not like these aren't like giant sums, right? But for people like us, this is a huge fucking sum. Yeah. That uh, was just dutifully lost, right? And, you know, I mean, that for people who don't have necessarily a class, a deep class analysis or whatever, that gets you like invested in all these like market mechanisms. And all of a sudden I do care how the stock market so, does. Yeah. Juice Something it up. No American should give a shit about. <laughs> yeah, right. right. But like the, now, now I care. Yeah. Now you are, they've done this great magic trick where they take like a middle class that can't got their money cause they worked and get to confuse them, even though they're maybe barely invested in the stock market get to confuse them into being little bourgeois shitheads yep. who who give a shit about the stock market. And this is the time when the economy and the way it's talked about in media and in politics begins to just become the stock market. You know, like, whereas yeah. previously you might have talked about, like, rising wages and union density and, like, you know, the share of fucking, like, uh, that labor's getting out of the deal here. The economy is becomes just yeah how's the stock yeah stock, how's the stock market, market up doing? or down up? you know bull or bear yep yep and so that was one way in which they ensured that like banks were never going to feel the brunt of this recession the other way they did wait wait by the, by the way 
Fidelity, one of the largest 401k like servicers and brokerages, um, added Bitcoin to their uh, Shit, to their yeah. 401ks too. So oh like now you can actually just directly buy Bitcoin in 401k. So that's like that's where it's heading. Stocks aren't enough anymore. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So yeah. So I mean, you know, that was one way in which they were able to ensure that banks would stay have a steady infusion of cash, right, to help get them through this crisis, right. The other way that they ensured that this would happen. Uh, was they literally stole a bunch of money from the third world, right? So the West, or the West, the United States, had convinced particularly countries within Latin America to start taking out loans very heavily in the 1970s. Now, the United States, through institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, et cetera, also just through its own banking power, international banking power, was not just the lender of choice, was like the sole lender for international finance, Right. And they convinced, you know, countries like Mexico, et cetera, right, to take out massive loans all throughout the 1970s, something that like a country like Mexico had not done prior to that. Right. But, uh, you know, under the idea of like, take out this loan, right, there'll be you'll have economic developments that will allow you to bring in more money and then you'll be able to pay the loan off. Right. So just because it looks like a big loan now with you just think about your economy is going to grow and so it's going to be easy to pay the usual shit. Right. Yeah. And they did this because interest rates were low in the 70s. But then something happened. (laughs) Something fascinating happened. Yeah, again, when Volcker jacks up the interest rates, that affects the international loan rate. It also affects the interest rate on repayments, right? And so a country like Mexico by 1982 is in a full-on debt crisis, which they try to do what every country that's under the boot of imperialism tries to do, which is print a bunch of money to try and pay the debt off faster. But the problem is, Mexico doesn't get to decide what the Mexican peso is worth. That gets decided in New York. Yep. Right? And New York decides it's worth nothing. And you enter the 82 peso crisis, right? Now, again, listeners of any of the myth might be aware that Mexico actually wrote a pretty cool constitution following the Mexican (laughs) revolution that was designed to keep American capital specifically out of Mexico, right? And to hopefully keep the proceeds of the many, uh, you know, riches of Mexico, the many, you know, uh, mineral wealth or oil wealth, et cetera, of Mexico, to try and keep it in Mexico. Um, This is when that constitution starts to get ripped up, all right? Because now the IMF has come in and we're restructuring, right? This happens all over Latin America at this time. So they're literally just extracting money out of the third world in order to pay off the essential, you know, crisis they've created in the first world. And to, again, I mean, infuse tons of cash into this new, you know, financialized economy, right? Um, And for this, like, if you guys can bear with me for a second, I just want to read this again, this passage from David Harvey and his brief history of neoliberalism. Beyond the speculative and often fraudulent froth that characterizes much of neoliberal financial manipulation, there lies a deeper process that entails the springing of, quote, the debt trap as a primary means of accumulation by dispossession. Crisis creation, management, and manipulation on the world stage has evolved into the fine art of deliberative redistribution of wealth from poor countries to the rich. I documented the impact of Volcker's interest rate increase on Mexico earlier while proclaiming its role as a noble leader organizing bailouts to keep global accumulation on track, the U.S. paved the way to pillage the Mexican economy. This was what the U.S. Treasury Wall Street IMF complex became expert at doing everywhere. Greenspan at the Federal Reserve deployed the same Volcker tactic several times in the 1990s. 
debt crisis in individual countries, uncommon during the 1960s, became very frequent during the 1980s and 1990s. Hardly any developing country remained untouched, and in some cases, as in Latin America, such crises became endemic. These debt crises were orchestrated, managed, and controlled both to rationalize the system and to redistribute assets. Since 1980, it has been calculated that over 50 Marshall Plans, over $4.6 trillion, have been sent by the peoples of the periphery to their creditors in the center. What a peculiar world, sighs Stiglitz. Uh, it's Joseph Stiglitz, the economist. Uh, in which the poor countries are in effect subsidizing the richest. What neoliberals call confisc uh, confiscatory deflation is furthermore nothing other than accumulation by dispossession. So they stole all the money. <laughs> yeah, like a looting. Yeah. Yeah. And we come back to capitalism's ugly face, right? When Marx, we, Marx criticizes the economists, you know, who try and describe... Uh, you know, uh, the enclosure movement through, you know, some sort of fancy language of the markets, you know, denuded of any sort of reality. Marx corrects them and he says, no, capitalism came into the world covered in blood, dirt and mud. Right. <laughs> you know, like that's how capitalism enters the planet. Right. You know, and that's essentially what we're seeing here is the American empire faced with decline immediately turns to looting the third world while simultaneously crushing its own working class at home. Two, two things that allow the other to happen. Yes. Because you can't crush the working class of America without inducing a depression. And you can only save the rich of America from feeling that depression by stealing from the working class of the rest of the world. Yes. Precisely, right? And so the 80s enters us into the wonderful period that we live in today, right? A... Steady stagnation at best of wages, decline actually for most people, a complete destruction of any sort of social safety net that might have existed, all these kind of things. In you know, 1987, uh, Paul Volcker finally leaves as Fed chairman, right? Everybody hated him so much. He made it all the way to 1987. He's replaced by Alan Greenspan. And interestingly, Volcker later does an interview where somebody asks him about the Volcker you know, shock and they go, Hey, um, did you feel you needed to do that? Because, you know, monetarist policy, right? This goes back to the previous episode, this idea that in, you know, in order to curb inflation, you're going to have to jack up interest rates, right? To curb inflation. Uh, did you do that? Uh, because monetarist policy seemed like the right thing to do. And what, you know, what's your takeaway from it? And Volcker very candidly said, you know, monetarist policy is really just a fig leaf. Right. Because if we said what we were actually doing, which was jacking up interest rates uh, in order to essentially create a recession, people who, you know, maybe wanted to buy a car and all of a sudden found that the interest rate for buying a car is 20 percent would get mad at us. But if we say monetarist policy, they don't get mad at us. Right. And essentially what he meant was if we mystify this all mm -hmm. is, look, there's this thing called the market who can know how it works. Right. Only a select group of wizards known as, known as economists can know how this works. And we have to go and we have to cast the spells and it just is what it is, right? That mystifies it in such a way that people just say, never mind, I don't, I don't care anymore and move away, right? Or at best, <laughs> at best, if you, the, you know, these ideas have been laundered, mystified, as we talked about in the last episode, using these, you know, this bullshit from, you know, conservative ideology and think tanks and, you know, talking about, you know, uh, 
the fears of hyperinflation and uh, moral degeneracy, whatever, to cover for this shit. At best, what people get out of it, or at most, is like, you know, partisan politics. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, I, I guess... Uh, I don't really get why, but somehow whatever the president is doing right now is uh, fucking us. Or, But it's so mystified, like, you can't really tell. It's all just going back and forth. As, as like, wages are declining, you, you, depending on who you are and who you feel like, you can blame whoever you want, and you're still not hitting the fucking target. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so Greenspan takes over, right? And unless we think that mission accomplished, right? We can go back to uh, whatever fucking policies of the 50s and 60s. When Greenspan comes in, he understands you got to put the paddle to the floor, right? Now we now we maintain and gain, right? You know, we did the big hit, right? Now we got to keep it going. And by the 90s, like I said, I mean, he's, you know, uh, tallying President Clinton, right? You know, quote, Sustainable economic expansion uh, is maintained thanks to atypical restraint on compensation increases, which appear to be mainly the consequence of greater worker insecurity. Or if you want that translated by the Wall Street Journal, many management theorists insist that the whole concept of a job, steady work at steady pay from the same employer, must be discarded because the old ways of defining work are no longer meaningful. <laughs> All right. And essentially... Greenspan's contribution to this whole thing is we need to make everybody's work life as unstable as possible, right? The idea that you're just going to go work at a company and work there for 50 years is going to give people a false sense of security about their position in the world. With that false sense of security, they might get up to hijinks, right? And the last thing we want is hijinks. So what we're going to do is make their work situation as unstable as humanly possible, right? We're going to do that by not enforcing any sort of labor laws, right? So companies now, by the 80s, every company and every union negotiation is threatening to move the company overseas, right? By the way, something that's made easier by the fact that the U.S. has looted all these countries like Mexico, creating opportunities for American companies to buy factories and stuff in these places and move production over there. But they're all doing this. This is, by the way, technically illegal, but like all illegal things, uh, call the cops, see what happens, yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Um, you know, so they're, they're doing it via that. They're also doing it via, uh, this sort of movement towards a non-union workforce that is, you know, uh, a lot more unstable, you know, all these different little methods, right. To try and make the workforce as unstable as possible. Now, the latest one, of course, is the gig economy, but obviously you can tell that we have just gone further down the road, basically. Nothing has changed. We've only gone further down the road of this process. And, what was interesting is, again, you know, hitting on a point from last time, inflationary, inflationary pressure again showed its head in the 90s, but the wage side of the equation, right, was continuing to decline relative to the capital share, right? And so Greenspan, despite being a strict monetarist and all this bullshit about we mentioned about the textbook definitions, kept interest rates low, didn't do anything. Almost as if this whole thing is a political project and not an economic orthodoxy, right? Yeah. Now, hilariously, I just got to read this because this is so funny. In the 2000s, uh, of course, there's a huge bubble that blows up with tech in about 99, 2000, right? And, you know, uh, once that speculative bubble explodes, Greenspan correctly realizes the American economy kind of runs on speculative bubbles now and that he's got to inflate another one. And so... He immediately starts cutting interest rates after that explodes. 
And he starts pushing the idea of buying homes and encouraging homeowners to borrow against their <laughs> home values. And so this is from 2004. This is a speech he gave to the Credit Union National Association. Indeed, recent research within the Federal Reserve suggests that many homeowners might have saved tens of thousands of dollars had they held adjustable rate mortgages rather than fixed rate mortgages during the past decade. Though this would not have been the case, of course, at interest rates trended sharply upward. American consumers might benefit if lenders provided greater mortgage product alternatives to the traditional fixed rate mortgage. To the degree that households are driven by fears of payment shocks, but are willing to manage their own interest rate risks, the traditional fixed rate mortgage may be an expensive method of financing a home. So he's essentially talking to the people who are doing home financing and saying, it'd be great for America if you really pushed these adjustable rate mortgages, right? Really go for it, guys. I mean, it's economically best for everybody, isn't it, right? Uh, you know, calling it Fed research and all this kind of stuff. What Greenspan did in the following years, notice how he said, this is all good so long as interest rates don't go up, right? Over the next two years, his last two years as Fed chairman, he raised interest rates <laughs> by 400%. <laughs> so he raised it from sub 1% to 4.5% on his way out, right? Which doesn't sound like a lot until you start to think, what if I had an adjustable rate mortgage that was tied to the interest rates, you know, tied to these interest rates? Um, basically, taking trillions of housing debt, right? creating trillions of housing debt and essentially transferring it to the banks, right? I mean, it is, can only be described as a fucking looting, right, of American homeowners. Now, none of us have homes anymore, so maybe we say, fuck them, who cares? <laughs> but uh, this is not good stuff. <laughs> this is bad. No, awful. Um, and that brings us to what we talked about last time, which is the 2008 crisis. We saw how that played out. Right. And now we're further down the road. Nobody owns anything anymore. Uh, everybody's marginally employed at best. Up until a pandemic comes around, uh, our government, hapless government, kills off a million people <laughs> just, you know, within a couple of years. And uh, wouldn't you know it, when you kill off a million people, you have a labor shortage. Yeah. So this, like, so now I think, you know, we can assume that. As much as like capital has enjoyed like falling real wages over the last uh, forty years, a growing you know share of uh, profit from productivity, uh, the rollback of uh, regulations, you know neoliberalism. They've mm -hmm. they've been winning for a long time. They've completely destroyed uh, the New Deal. You know, as of the nineties, um, they've kept doing these fucking pump and dump bubbles and <laughs> and just running away with the bag but at the same time we know like it's not enough mm -hmm. they want more right yeah capitalism has to expand right this is the problem right and we're now fully financialized we're all in financial markets it's got to grow they they want grow, more places to put their money they want more profit uh there's you know despite all these things despite falling wages there's still pressures on the rate of profit mm -hmm. going downward uh, and they're just, that's how they think. They're just like more, more, more power, more money, take it all, uh, end even the fantasy of democracy if we can, like whatever. They'll, there's yeah. no limit to the to their lust, right? So we're now set up in this place. Maybe, let's 
imagine like maybe uh, in the late 70s where you've got this actual crisis of um, the economy and, and a an exogenous shock, the pandemic, mm-hmm. supply chain crisis, the loss of a bunch of workers. You've now got inflation. You're being primed sort of politically, narratively everywhere from the the early form of it, like nobody wants to work anymore um, (laughs) to, you know, and all the forms it's taken about the decadence of the American working class and how it needs to be disciplined. We we're hearing all about, again, what we've established as bullshit, this connection between wages going up or just people having more fucking money and money supply uh, going up, being related to our inflation uh, cycle that we're in right now, both, you know, it's being been attached to the um, COVID relief funds uh, as, you know, money that was printed and handed out, it's causing this inflation <laughs> and to rising wages because again, no one wants to work because of the things not, you know, of course we know it's also because, you know, a bunch of people died and the supply chains were disrupted. So like, and then you've also got in, in the hot seat, the, like the face of uh, power in America the 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 person who has to tell people like what the deal is you've got another fucking loser mm-hmm. uh an empty-headed fucking moron in the no political per- future no political future no political vision yeah uh a history of devotion to the banks um and just an uncanny knack for like telling people like hey man that's the way it is <laughs> yeah deal with it <laughs> yeah. delivering the bad news deal with a jack kind of kind of a hard-on for delivering the bad news like jimmy carter yeah and so we're also now hearing about the need to do this again yeah so we heard from Powell in the last episode what well, give us the quote again yeah, the headline. So, yeah, the headline, you know, U.S. Federal Reserve says its goal is to get wages down. And in the quote being directly from Powell, we got to get wages down. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that, I mean, the man saying it like that means, I mean, you got to imagine that that's what's coming down the road, like that this is coming, that they're going to uh, use the Fed, meaning use monetary policy to cause a recession Mm-hmm. to discipline labor yeah uh, that that's the signal you got to take from that um at least a, as a starting point at face value uh bl- i guess the question is like when is it coming or why hasn't it come already uh or like what you know how is it going to be different how is it going to be the same you know well, what i think just real quick before we get there i mean just to give a quick note on current inflation right it again is not caused by rising wages or any of this other bullshit is discussed, right? Supply chain issues, which you brought up, but also the energy market mm-hmm. is creating this, right? Essentially, you know, oil producing nations have realized, oh shit, there's probably not a whole lot of future for oil. So the time for price gouging has come, right? And, you know, people are, you know, pointing this out constantly of like, you know, how do you explain high gas prices? Well, why don't you look at the profits of, you know, ExxonMobil or whatever they've been skyrocketing, right? They're price gouging, right? The other thing, too, is that condition we talked about in the 1970s of a realignment of international forces, right, from America existing in a unipolar world of having almost total control over, you know, most of the planet, uh, that is changing, right? 
Things are shifting. Things are moving. Well, shifting again. You know? Yeah. In the 70s, it was a shift from that unipolar capture of the entire world post-World mm-hmm. War II to a few wily nations who happen yeah. to be producing oil getting together and going, mm-hmm. hmm, maybe we can take a chunk of power. Not 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 wrestle another pole, but mm-hmm. like, but take a chunk of power for ourselves, enough to make us rich, mm-hmm. not to really topple the power of the United States overnight or to like, you know make another global economic system around us, but to take a bunch of the power, enough power relative to our size to make us rich. Yeah, I mean, that European currency uh, union that they were scared of maybe coming into existence in the 1970s, it happened, happened, right? Yeah, and, you know, one of the, you know, actual reasons for invading Iraq was that Saddam Hussein wanted to convert his foreign reserves from dollars to euros. Yep. Uh, one of the very first things the U.S. did after invading was put into law in Iraq that it has to be held in dollars, right? I mean, these are things the United States cares about, right? Uh, with the with the exit of gold as what's backing the U.S. dollar, it's oil that backs the U.S. dollar, right? But there's other avenues for oil to be sold. Right now, you know, because of this fucking idiotic war in Ukraine, Russia is moving its oil through China, through India, right? And is selling it not in dollars, right? This is a significant setback for American capital, however they want to, you know, display it. Russia selling as much oil as they ever had, right? And now it's outside of the dollar hegemony of international markets, right? At the same time, what could not have been predicted in the 70s is... In the 1980s, going to the 1990s, is in Asia, something that America thought they had on lock, another global power has risen, right? And it's hard to imagine that there was a time when China was not a consideration, but in the 70s, it really wasn't, right? I think Kissinger's idea with China was, we'll get China under our boot, and that will be that, right? We'll bring them into our market, we'll stop this Cold War bullshit, and we'll just start buying and selling with them. Yeah, he was like, look, you know, Mexico has a lot of ideas we don't like, but, you know, we can make them our vassals, so why not do the same with China, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that has not worked out according to plan, and, you know, China represents another giant node of power in the international stage that can only exist with the decline of American power, right? So all those problems from the 70s still exists because capital capitalism cannot transcend those problems, right? All it can do is kick the can down the road until the problems get worse, right? And, now and we're in that stage where they've gotten worse. The same types of problems now on a, on a much larger scale. Like yeah. the, the threat to U.S. economic hegemony from China, Russia, and the uh, weakening of the dollar and the U.S. O- control of oil market is way larger now than OPEC yes. was in the 70s. Yeah, OPEC, I mean, all we had to do was cut a deal with OPEC, threaten them yeah, with they some just guns more and money. cut a deal. Yeah. yeah, you know, that is increasingly going off the table. And it's, you know, people are going, why can't Joe Biden just go tell the Saudis to bring oil prices down? And it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, the Saudis are still a sort of key cog in the American machine, but they see the writing on the wall. They don't fucking listen to us. You know, like they have a resource that we need. Now, we have resources they need, which is guns, but they're calling our bluff. Are you ever going to stop selling us weapons? And the answer seems to be no. (laughs) So, you know, in that case, why not do what they want with their oil? Right. And so, you know, the the system of American imperialism is fraying at the edges. Right. And that's the actual source of a lot of these crises. Right. This economic crisis. And. The response is going to be, who are we going to take the money from? And the answer seems to be that they want to take it from the working class again. 
But now we have additional problems. One, can the U.S. steal from foreign reserves of other countries like they did in the 80s? I actually don't think that we have the ability to do that anymore. A lot of countries that we stole from previously, Venezuela, places like that, are now situated given their own you know, ability to extract resources, things like the pink tide that tried to move away from you know, reliance on American finance and stuff like that. All those things have loosened the grip of the United States on these countries. At the Venezuela time, was just able to cut a deal yeah. with the U.S. state to start uh, selling us oil again yeah. because we need it. So they're yeah. not only— yeah. Our attempt to strangle Venezuela is yeah. falling apart yeah. on its face because of our own international Maduro's weakness. Sigma male fact number 59, make your biggest <laughs> make your biggest haters your biggest customers. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, the other part of it, too, is countries like Russia and China, right, who are trying to— themselves represent some sort of pull against American power have offered cooperation agreements with some of these countries to be like, hey, you know, you don't have to get squeezed by the United States. Now, some of us are students of history might realize I kind of remember the U.S. doing this at one time to yeah. British colonies, right? But this is how empires get transferred, right? You know, it's not always just through guns. A lot of it is through economic coercion, right? And you know, people at the you know periphery of the empire tend not to have a lot of fond feelings for it. So if a better offer comes along, they'll take it. Yeah, fuck it. You know, the European Union similarly has not been the obedient character that I think the Americans have wanted. I mean, they wouldn't participate in the 2003 Iraq war, which the U.S. was pretty pissy about. For those that remember it, right? That was old Europe, not like new Europe, right? Um, well, except what was Britain in the EU at that time? Britain has always been a, uh, let's just say, rogue member of the EU. They were technically in it, but not part of the currency union, yeah, not bound right. by any of its strictures. So basically, okay. all they did was just recognize the trade agreements. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Uh, but yeah, the Germany and France famously were right. uh, old Europe's, you know, spewing lies that uh, that dumb picture Colin Powell is showing is probably just somebody's balls and not actually uh, missile sites. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, proving that all that shit was bullshit on its face, like anybody could have seen it, you know. Um, but, you know, the European Union hasn't been the steady partner that we would have wished it would be, right? I mean, they haven't gone rogue or anything at the same time. It's not like they're, like, fucking helping a lot with shit like Ukraine and stuff <laughs> like that, right? You know. Um, and so, yeah, that UBS position has declined, right? Uh, similarly, I mean, you know, the financial situation, right, I think has just gotten comparatively worse in financial markets. Like, the sand that it's built on has gotten worse. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think just, like, financial markets in general are just super leveraged because, you know, unlike the 80s, um, you know, where the ushering in of neoliberalism was, like, the Volcker shock um, in many ways, or at least was represented as, like, a result of neoliberalism over the decade. Um you know, now I think financial markets and just the economy in general has been accustomed to um, low rates for a while. And just like ultimately um, we're seeing long term results of neoliberalism where like if you now raise the rates in the same shocking way. Right. It's not we don't really have a lot of labor unions to break up necessarily right now. Um, and certainly uh, banks have, and investment firms have been deregulated to the point where. You just have the economy invested in a lot more risky assets at a highly levered way. So, you know, if you jack up interest, I mean, case in point, the Fed jacked up interest rates maybe like one or two percent and the stock market is down over 25 percent. 
the S&P 500 is on on that news, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. like, you know, that, that, that's, that is a much more sensitive than I think you'd have, you know, previously. So if you, you know, jack up rates actually in a shocking way, like, you know, 10, 15, 20%, um, that could like, I mean, crush not only like the, um, economy and like people's jobs, which is like, you know, the intention, but also just like the fundamental, um, the actual institutions that are supposed to buy stuff on the cheap after that. Right. And like consolidate yeah. power, they might be gone too because yeah. of it. Well, I mean, think about how the world's richest man and the world's biggest company, right. Or I don't know if Tesla's reach world biggest company size or whatever, but Think of how overleveraged both that company and Elon Musk are, right? You know, and it's not like uh, Elon Musk is taking like smart loans and shit, right? A jacking up of interest rates could burst the Tesla bubble overnight, right? You know, yeah. um, you know, there's just a lot of built-in instability into financial markets that wasn't there in 1979. Part of that was that the New Deal, you know, the reforms of the New Deal, having seen, you know, the banking infrastructure just completely fucking self-emulate had built up all these legal guide rails around banks, right? They determined different types of banks and you had to be one of them and you were limited in what you could do as that type of bank, right? They put up guide rails about what you could buy and what you couldn't buy, what you could trade and what you couldn't trade, right? They Carter had started to peel that away by 79, but Bill Clinton took a fucking, you know, flamethrower to all that fucking regulation and just got rid of all of it. And none of it's ever been built back up. I yeah. mean, you know, in 2008, they just were like, ah, yeah, like obviously deregulation played a part in this, but, uh, you know, you can't like tell banks what to do. Yeah, you know? right. I mean, like that we're be... so deregulated right now to the point where there's like nothing to even like cut to a degree. Well, right? well, think about like, I mean, you just mentioned that Fidelity, you know, getting involved in Bitcoin. But I think like Chase Manhattan has like, you know, created various investment portfolios with like crypto, like yeah. heavily involved in it and things like that. I mean, all the banks have gotten into crypto. Any country that gave a shit about, like, preserving its economic system and not, like, having it crash and making it deeply unstable would have made investment in crypto fucking illegal, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, again, China, a country that I guess is, is a little more uh, concerned about the stability of its economy, has gone on a big offensive against crypto, right? That mm -hmm. is what a normal, normally functioning economy will do except for in the United States where our economy isn't based on production or anything like that, you know, like in China where it's based on manufacturing and stuff like that. It's not based on any of that. It's all based on finance, right? Yep. And the only thing that finance does is move money from one place to another. Yep, right? seeking yield, seeking alpha. Yeah, it's never like producing anything or anything like that. So it needs increasingly risky speculative assets, right, to invest in, which is why you have to deregulate every step of the way yeah. because they can't be bound by those strictures, right, or else that will limit their growth. Yeah, and that's what the crypto industry is doing right now in Washington where they're now actually lobbying uh, to have crypto be classified and regulated by the CFTC instead of the SEC, right? And, yeah. like, they're actually somehow a bill is now on the floor because two Democratic senators, um, I think Gillibrand and someone else, um, you know, put it up there, and that's, like, due to the the fact that um, one uh, capital knows that this is a like Web three right was what is like a catch all phrase for basically like crypto and blockchain and everything yeah. um, <clears throat> is basically an avenue of a completely deregulated market that skirts um, traditional uh, financial markets right which um, you know leads to some pretty like ripe um, one scams but also leads to you know um, dodging actual oversight. 
in anything, right? Dodging, uh, you know, getting returns in ways where you, you know, just couldn't or where markets just like weren't saturated yet, right? It's a dark pool of money where um, you can't have that be classified in the same way as traditional, you know, banks. And that's why the crypto industry now is like getting to the point where they're actually capturing the federal government rather than, I mean, imagine, imagine <laughs> uh, China's government, just being like, yeah, sure. I guess uh, you know, crypto lobbyist is saying we gotta we yeah. gotta not regulate this thing and just you know. Yeah, well, let's let our major financial institutions get tied our, to uh, the most obvious scam yeah. that's ever a, a, a literal like uh, textbook like Ponzi scheme yeah. on a mass scale. Uh, you know, like and, that, and that's what's happening in yeah. the U.S. right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you know, real estate is another thing about this. I mean, like. The fire sector, particularly real estate, has been allowed to become this relentless, you know, speculative asset that's just being traded back and forth, back and forth, right? And, you know, we already saw in 2008 what can happen from this, you know, again, in China, a country that actually gives a shit about trying to, like, you know, regulate its economy in some sort of way. You know, they've been essentially um, dispossessing some of their largest, like, holders in real estate, right? Because they're looking at that and saying, do we really want to have the economy collapse on an idiotic real estate bubble? You know, like who gains from that? Right. Yeah. And in the United States, the state is so captured. There is no ability to push back on any of that. Now that goes back to the point that we mentioned in 79 about, you know, to Greg's point about, wasn't this Volcker shock, isn't it risky behavior? And it's like, yeah, it's fucking incredibly risky. It's even more risky now because all the problems from the seventies are worse and all the potential solutions of where the banks could find money should they, you know, get into a deeper crisis are gone. Americans' pockets have been, already been picked, right? There's yeah. not a lot to get out of them anymore, right? The access to international, you know, reserves are also not as available as they used to be for a lot of reasons, right? And at the same time, you know, the financial markets themselves, because of deregulation, are even more unpredictable and are even more built on sand. Now, the Treasury Department is aware of a lot of this because they get to stress test banks and stuff like that. So they get a deeper picture of the finances of every single bank, right? The financials of every single bank than any of us could ever get, right? And so they know how much bullshit is on the books, presumably. Yeah. Right? So, so that leads to the question of, will, you know, are we in line for another Volcker shock? And I would argue, you know, this is not to say they won't do it, but... It is so much riskier now than it was in 79. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, I think there's, as far as there's what a might happen. A couple of possibilities. I, what we're saying is they love they would love to do this. They want to discipline labor. They would mm -hmm. love to use monetary policy, this tool that's worked in the past. But we're saying that the our economy is so fucking stupid now. So rotten. That like <laughs> top to bottom. The crypto's just the fucking tip of the iceberg. Oh, Everything yeah. is so fucked. We, we can substitute any other number of dumb scams. They never yeah. they were never cleaned up after 2008 which all tanked the fucking global economy. And that was in, you know, very recently. Um they know now it's even worse. Interest rates have been at fucking nothing and they've just been pumping fucking money into these places in these banks for over a decade now, such that they're, they're all leveraged. They got to be leveraged to the fucking hilt. Every company was just getting fucking free money to buy its own stock back, hollowing mm -hmm. out its assets, as we've talked about many times, like Boeing. So the economy is so fucking dumb now that you add to that. Yeah. All the other like magnified, um, precariousness that maybe they feel they they can't do this. They're in this hard place. They want to do this. And they're talking. And there are forces out there priming this. Like, you know, 
No one wants to work anymore. We need to like blah, blah, blah. But like they can't pull the trigger because they're fucking scared. So there's a couple of possibilities that I see. Either they come up with a fix. They come up with something mm -hmm. like the, you know, calling back the loans from Central America in the mm -hmm. 80s that, that like gets liquidity enough into uh, U.S. banks and stock markets to keep it afloat as labor is disciplined. Okay, maybe that doesn't exist. I mean, that's a big question about like where we are in history, right? Are we at the, are we nearing the final crisis of the U.S. empire that collapses yeah. at all? <laughs> or are we at another, another gro greater crisis than the last that'll lead on to five more before the fucking thing collapses? Will capital find uh, another fucking place to stick its snout to uh, mm -hmm. keep this shit rolling downhill longer? I don't know. The other possibility is like, I think I think what they're trying to do actually is, you know, as part of this, I mean, they've been saying since like, I mean, at least since like the March job numbers came out, like Powell mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, top bankers have been saying like, gosh, you know, uh, maybe American companies should stop hiring. Yeah. And this is yeah they go look for voluntary compliance right yeah, so this yeah. is Which, interesting yeah they've done in the past it just doesn't work very well but, well yeah. well that's but the maybe thing. maybe they have a that seems like they're trying that at least and the fact that they did and there are hiring freezes there are right now like hiring a lot of them going in yeah. yeah so like that could be another thing that is different about now mm -hmm. is that it's maybe capital is now yet even more organized yeah, yeah. itself to get on the same page. And if they need a stick, they have the interest rates. Okay, so they jack the Fed jacked up the interest rates by a percent or something and cut gave a big fucking haircut to the market, right? Yep. That's the warning. That's the fucking warning shot that says either you stop hiring now, either you pump the fucking brakes on this job market, or we have no choice but to do this. And if capital is organized enough, better through all the avenues that were just like in their crib in the 70s when they did this, all these think mm -hmm. tanks and the, the business roundtable and all this shit, all these connections, if now they're robust and strong and mm -hmm. fairly unified as a class, they are fucking hyper-conscious, then maybe, maybe they can. Maybe that can work. Maybe they can you know throw the market out the window and just say, like, let's all collude to stop hiring. And the, that's as high as the interest rate will go, you know? And so they'll be able to fuck us. Yeah. Um, and pump the brakes on this. And then that becomes a new lever of economic policy in America, newly invented, like, in a strong way, where you have the implicit threat of um, interest rates that are used in maybe small signal hikes to... Um, leverage the power of organized colluded capital to to uh slow the job market yeah and i mean you know on that front right obviously since 1979 uh, monopolization has continued to pace mm -hmm. there's Between fewer this, people to collude with in every industry no matter which one yep. you look at there's a lot less people you have to talk to i fewer mean fewer people to get on the same page and there was some sort of similarity to this you know you don't need every company yeah you just yeah. need enough of the economy yeah. you need the bulk. affect yeah the job market. Well, I know, at least in the tech industry, like there's just been a spree of, um, well, whatever the opposite of a spree, like the word <laughs> spree is, you know, um, it, there, there's just been a slew of um, hiring freezes just across the board. I mean, my employer no. has issued a hiring freeze as well as like, you know, Uber, Snapchat, Facebook, even like some like, you know, um, job cuts there. It's just like, it, and it, 
every day, like on like tech news, you'll see new news like this. And this is the, at the same week where, you know, Fed Chair Powell was talking about, yeah, um, you know, we need to freeze. And so I was like, and, you know, all the citations are like, oh, the, you know, economy, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, you know, stock market, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But like uh, you can't ignore what is like kind of happening actually at the ground level because what finance press is saying is that this is actually why yeah you know it's happening so yeah well they they get to say yeah we're doing that because we're looking ahead at ooh the the way the economy looks like it's going which could cause the fed to raise interest yeah. rates and tesla so tesla just hi- to- fired 10 percent of their staff uh too because elon, yeah. elon said which was just he, elon's legal he had right? yeah right <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> um yeah and you know, ten percent of Tesla staff got fired, and he issued hiring freezes across the board. Because Elon just said in a tweet that he just has a very bad feeling about the economy. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I mean, they might have coordinated, right? And I mean, you know, they tried that in the past. I mean, that, that like I said, in the late nineteenth to early twentieth century, right? That was how these kind of things were regulated, right? Um, you know, bankers would just get together and be like, all right, we got to do something about this fucking economy, right? And would make some sort of decision in a dark room, right? And would do it. The problem is, is that capital, particularly, you know, uh, you know, highly accumulated capital, it tends to create extremely uh, venile, cynical uh, individuals, right? You know, uh, who think individually and then who... Um, Want to get the edge? Act, yeah, act individually, yeah. right? And our, in our, you know, like that is to their interest, I guess. But uh, has made that kind of you know unofficial regulation not functional in the past. Now mm-hmm. doesn't mean we won't try it, right? I mean, you we're know, it, like uh, we're I think entering we're, a new gilded age with yeah. monopolization, yep. rising inequality. It's fewer and fewer people who maybe have a more like uh, messianic view than. Mm-hmm previously i don't know well and, and I, also are like tied to the state in like very significant ways too you yeah. know for growth like a lot of growth engines you know at least in the tech industry and big tech is like you know by the federal government and mm-hmm. like contracts and stuff which mm-hmm. yeah and the, and the thing is is to remember is that uh you know just because i, I think sometimes particularly on the left we like game things out and we say oh like according to my strategy game here, this is the best possible answer. So therefore that must be what's going to happen as opposed to these are political choices being participated in by individuals. Many of them very stupid, right? All of them completely self-interested in that, you know, that introduces chance and volatility. So yeah, I mean, maybe they decide let's just redo the 19th century, right? The other thing is that, Maybe they do get a wild hair up their ass and say, fuck it, jack up the interest rates, right? And end up, you know, uh, initiating a crash that they might not be able to recover from. I mean, perfect recent example, the U.S. involvement in Ukraine, you know, any rational person look at that be like, that's going to start a war, right? <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. war could spiral out of control to something really bad. You shouldn't do it. Didn't stop them from doing it. And it's led to a lot of things. I mean, they were able to get the embarrassing, you know, sort of loss for Russia or whatever in the initial months of the war. But it's led to a lot of things that are, uh, let's just say, undesirable for the American empire. It's intensified the monetary relationship between Russia and China. It has convinced, I think, a lot of people around the world that they got to get oil and energy separated from the dollar and from the United States, right? These are real real long-term problems for the United States that supersede the minor gain of moving NATO one country closer to Russia. 
if right? that even happens. Yeah, you, you know, know? I mean? <laughs> and it's like that is an intense price to pay. And I think it's part of what caught a lot of people off guard about this whole thing is that every actor in it from Russia to the United States did the dumbest possible thing. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. why everyone's like, wait, this like that's so stupid on its face. Why would they do it? And we have to remember, it's like because these are institutions run by people and people can make very stupid choices. Right. So do they jack up interest rates despite all the various risks that we pointed out and how seemingly the uh that even in 79 when it, this was a risky move that they had much more control over the state and where it would go um you know is, is this even riskier now i think so but does that mean they won't do it right and the answer is who knows right you know no. they, i i think it's still on the table they could try some sort of you know uh let's all get together do a little monopoly push right see if that works right but they obviously want to discipline labor like, you know, that I think Joe Biden is essentially in office to do that. And um, I think it just makes for a future that is, uh, you know, highly contingent and uh, probably not going to be very pleasant for most people. <laughs> um, now, if I could, in, if you guys could indulge me one more time, please, right. always. All right. So in 2020. A favorite of our show, Larry Summers, mm. architect of uh, the uh, looting of the former Soviet Union, close personal friend of Jeffrey Epstein, and a uh, key economic advisor to Obama's uh, recovery plan, co-authored a paper for Brookings where he tried to answer a question that we've kind of been hinting at around here. Uh, that comes from the textbook definitions of inflation, monetary policy, etc., which is um, how could in the United States you have this country where uh, companies have higher and higher evaluations, where the stock market t continues to climb and climb and climb, yet labor seems to be getting nothing out of it, right? Essentially, how come the rising tide seems to only raise certain boats right while sinking others right because again according to the economics textbook that's not how it's supposed to happen and larry summers the grand irony of all concludes quote the american economy has become more ruthless as declining unionization increasingly demanding and empowered shareholders decreasing real minimum wages reduced worker protections and the increase in outsourcing domestically and abroad have disempowered workers with profound consequences for the labor market and the broader economy. We argue that the reduction in workers' ability to lay claim to rents within firms, this means wages, could explain the entirety of the change in the distribution of income between labor and capital in the United States in recent decades, and could also explain the rise in corporate valuations, profitability, and measured markups, as well as some of the decline in the Net, what he calls nationally, or I'm sorry, naturally occurring unemployment. So he gets it. He gets. And he's it. like, and it's awesome. They all know. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. They all know. Larry Summers, the very thing that he is, I guess, in theory, criticizing in this paper, is been his life's work. Yeah. He's like, look, I was there at the table with Bill Clinton. I was there at the table with Barack Obama. This is what we're doing right here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
Good stuff. So hopefully for everybody that was like freaked out by seeing that headline and being like, oh my God, this is mass off. Uh, guess what? It's so much worse. <laughs> so much worse. <laughs> the mask is still kind of on, you know? <laughs> the, mask, the mask was never on at any point, yeah. right? Like in these circles, in economic circles, Fed circles, all that kind of stuff, they're very open about the mission, right? It is a political project to empower capital at the expense of labor so that capital controls everything, right? Labor should have no say in their lives, in their daily goings-on, and how they live, anything like that. Everything should be dictated by capital. All labor is is an input, just like a stick of wood, right? Just like a bit of code, all that kind of stuff. And that's how it should be viewed, and that's how it should be seen, that's how it should be, right? And that's the world they're building. <laughs> cool. Um, I guess all you can hope for is that like they'll bring the empire down with us, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean the, I it's a good point. I mean, the one thing we, that you should have gotten from this whole discussion, right, is capital can't resolve its own crises. Capital is naturally unstable, yep. right? Capital is naturally unstable. And all its resolutions for its current crises don't resolve them. It just intensifies them it further down the road. them, yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's what we've been doing. We've been making the crisis worse for decades, mm -hmm. right? It will have a resolution for American capital. What that resolution <laughs> is depends on history and historical development, whatever, right? Yeah. But there will be a resolution for American capital. They will not be able to maintain this forever. It's slipping out of their hands as we speak. Well, uh, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you've enjoyed this, everybody. Um, yeah, there's no upside. Um, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing. If you subscribed to the Patreon just to listen to this, um, uh, like two hour uh, tirade um, and like doom saying, um, yeah, uh, thanks. And Good on you. Good yeah. on you. There's, there's funny episodes in here too. Enjoy the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.